First Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're going to be tonight. If you want to turn there, uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 1. We have walked through Paul's greeting and salutation. We walked through his commendation the last time we were together uh, as he commended the church for their faith and, the, and uh, how they had set an example for churches all over the world. And tonight we're going to, we're going to begin, uh, we're going to be talking about the, the power of a life of integrity. Uh, as, as Paul deals with some issues here, and he talks about their, his relationship with the Thessalonian believers, because it's in that relationship that there were some answers, and that'll, uh, you'll understand in just a moment. But let's just start by reading verses 1 through 6. Excuse me. <coughs> and, uh, and then we'll just, we'll just start from there. Second, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. So Paul here, as he's writing this, these Thessalonian believers, you remember he had been there, didn't have as, uh, as the amount of time that he wanted there with the, the new believers, and he was run out of town. We'll talk about that in a moment, but uh, he, he eventually sent Timothy back to check on them because he was afraid that all their work and all their labor had been in vain. And then, uh, uh, and, and he found out through this process that uh, there were some things being said about him and the tax being made on the gospel. And so this, this passage that we're looking at tonight, a big part of it is Paul's defense of his ministry. And so uh, he, he's referring back to the first visit to Thessalonica when, when, when he says that his visit was not a failure. And, uh, and the, the, the ministry in Thessalonica had, had become, begun very, you know, it begun calmly enough. But as we know, it, it ended with Paul and Silas leaving under the cover of darkness uh, because a riotous mob was out to get them. Uh, and the, the Jews the, the, who stirred up this mob their slander and hatred and, and uh, vitriol did not end after Paul and Silas left the city. I mean, you think that they'd be like, okay, we got them out of the city. That's good enough. But Paul and Silas went to Berea after that, and, uh, and they, just, they weren't satisfied with running them out of town. They, they, they followed them and, uh, to Berea to stir up trouble there. But, but even after that, when Paul uh, fled Berea, uh, they still went back to Thessalonica and apparently they, they continued to speak against the missionaries to the Thessalonian believers. So the, the, the Jews particularly seem to have taken the occasion of Paul and Silas's hasty departure to try to convince the believers that they had been defrauded, that they had been fooled because there were many teachers who traveled and philosophers, not just religious teachers, but just teachers of all kinds who would go and they would 
teach something all for the, for the goal of trying to raise money, get money. Then as soon as they had the money, they would cut out of town and leave his, the students high and dry. And so they're, these, these people are telling them, Hey, this is what Paul has done. You think he's this great teacher, but you know, he's not representing some savior. He's not talking about anything real. I mean, why else would he leave in the middle of the night? Of course, they all know the reason he, they left, that he left in the middle of the night is because they were chasing him and they were, they did it to escape them. But, but in the following verses, Paul offers a response to what these opponents of the gospel had said against him and against Silas. Uh, and being as Paul's visit was cut so short and uh, he had to leave town, you know, in the middle of the night, some may have thought that the visit to Thessalonica was a failure, but all the believers there knew that it was not a failure. This is, this is what he said. He, he actually uses the phrase uh, similar to, you know, multiple times because he's telling them, he's reminding them of what really happened. And he's saying, you were there, you saw it, you know what happened, you know us. This is in essence what he was saying. And so uh, they knew it was not a failure which the word there that's translated failure just means ineffective or worthless. They knew it wasn't because when Paul and Silas arrived in the city, there were no believers. There was not a church there. Not a single believer in, in Jesus Christ was in that city. And yet when they left, even though it was a short period of time, when they left, there was a strong church that was alive, that was growing, that was standing up to persecution and as we know from last week's study, they were, had, were becoming an example for believers all across the world. They knew it wasn't a failure because, I mean, Paul didn't accomplish everything that he himself wanted to do, but it wasn't a failure because lives had been, had been changed. There were people who didn't know Jesus before who were now serving him. And so obviously Paul and Silas's visit had not been a failure. Uh, and, and sometimes we get, we get ourselves tied up because we may have in our mind a specific goal that we want to accomplish in something for in ministry. And, and then, and then when it doesn't happen, the, excuse me, the way that we thought it was going to happen, we, it's easy for us to walk away and say, man, what a flop, what a failure. But we never, we need to make sure we, we stop and pause and take time and look at it and say, wait a minute, what did God actually accomplish? What did he do? And if a life was changed, if a person was touched, then it was not a failure. You know, I, I, Lord willing, I'm, I'm going to be here for a long time. But if, if the Lord called me out of this church tomorrow, I can look back and I see people like Sam. And I see a life that's changed. And because of that, I know, even if I didn't accomplish everything in my ministry that I may have wanted to accomplish, that it was not a failure. Because there's, there are people that are in the kingdom of God now that we're not. There are people like Sam who are, love Jesus now who were far from God before. And so that's the key. That's what we have to understand when we measure success and failure in ministry, or when we measure success and failure as a church, we have to measure it against our mission. That's the only way we can measure success. You know, a lot of churches today... Um, they, they want to measure success by attendance. Well, attendance is, a, it is an important uh, 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 number. It's an important uh, uh, figure that you can use to, to measure certain things. 
But you know what? I also know of a lot of churches that grew without reaching a new person. And every, every new person that came in was just a transfer from another church. So if you measure success by the mission, the mission is not to gather other Christians together from other churches. The mission is to reach people. And so by that, by that matrix, you could look at that and say, well, that church has a lot of people attending, but they were not successful in the mission. And so this is so important for us because it's easy for us, you know, here in America, there's, you know, you come to church on a Sunday morning and, and if the crowd's down a little bit, sometimes you walk out and you're just feeling a little deflated. You're like, oh man, you know, crowd was, wasn't as good. Crowd wasn't down. That's, that's not how we measure success as a church. Yes, we want to grow, but we want to grow by reaching new people. But uh, the way we have to measure it is, was God's will accomplished today? Did he finish what he wanted to do today? Did he touch somebody's life? Was somebody saved? Was there, was there somebody healed? Was there something that took place? That's the only way you can measure it. But when you look at this visit that he had that was obviously not a failure, uh, just remember the history. He reminds them of the history behind the visit. Verse 2, he said, We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. So the, the Thessalonians were very much aware that Paul and Silas had been treated very, very badly in Philippi. We remember, we're not going to go over in detail, a lot of detail, but before... Coming to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas had had been had ministered in the city of Philippi where they met a group of women. One of them was named Lydia, and they were meeting outside the city for a, in a certain place for prayer, which was uh, basically it tells you that the city of Philippi didn't have a lot of Jewish males in there because you have to have a certain number of Jewish males to have a synagogue in a city. So be, because they were meeting outside the city, and not in a synagogue that tells you that there weren't a lot of Jewish men inside the city of Philippi. And so uh, uh, Lydia, Lydia becomes a believer and they, she insisted that Paul and Silas stay at their home. And, and one day, if you remember, Paul and Silas were accosted by this demon-possessed slave girl who followed them around yelling at them. And, and eventually Paul just basically turns around and tells her, stop it, shut up and come out of her and cast the demon out and, 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 even though, you know, she was saying, the, if you look at it, she was saying good things about their ministry. Uh, but God does not need the testimony of the devil, you know. And so anyway, this she's the girl is set free from the demon. But the problem is she was making a lot of money for her masters. She was a slave girl and they were angry that they're not going to make any more money from her by, by, by telling fortunes. And so they formed this mob. And Paul and Silas were severely beaten by wooden rods. And then they were thrown into prison with their feet in stocks. And we know the story then uh, how they, Paul and Silas began to sing praises at midnight in the earthquake. And the Philippian jailer got saved and his whole family and that sort of thing. But in Philippi, the missionaries had indeed suffered very severely. Then they go to Thessalonica. We don't think about this. The wounds had not healed yet. You know, I mean, they just went straight there. It's not like they said, well, let's take a couple months, get all healed up, and then we'll go to Thessalonica. No, they went straight 
to Thessalonica after all of this. So they were, they were still in pain. They were still dealing with the after effects of this beating and all of these things that took place. And the Thessalonians would have seen this. They would have known this. They, they obviously, from what Paul said, they knew that they had suffered in Philippi. But despite suffering for sharing, the, the severe suffering for sharing the gospel of Christ, Paul moved on to Thessalonica, to Thessalonica to preach the good news there. Now, I want you to look at verse 2 again. and Somebody tell me, where did Paul get the courage to move on to Thessalonica after such a beating? What's that? I still can't hear you. The help of God. That's right. The courage to continue to preach the gospel did not come from within Paul. It wasn't that he said, I'll be strong. I'm going to, I'm going to buck up. I'm going to be a good soldier. You know, there's something to be said about the uh, perseverance and attitude of perseverance. But he said, listen, I'm an apostle. And after what I went through there, even I, I needed the help of God to continue the calling on my life. And, you know, I, I can sort of, in, in ministry, I can tell you sometimes, um, I'll just, I, all I can speak from is my perspective. I can't speak from yours, but I can tell you many times in ministry, pastors feel like they take a beating. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes it's, 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 you have to have courage to go back into the same situation. Maybe it's, you know, for example, and I'm not giving, thinking of anything particular, but you, maybe you preach something and somebody doesn't like what you preached. And then they come and they berate you and then they, they speak bad about you and then they leave the church. And, and listen, I, I, I'm just here to tell you when those kind of things happen, um, it's, it always feels very personal. You know, I remember, I remember one time a guy left the church and he, he called me while I was on vacation to tell me they were going to leave the church. He said, because, uh, because we're not getting fed. He said, now it's not personal. It's nothing personal. And I'm thinking, well, that sure feels personal because I'm kind of the one trying to put the meal out there to feed you, you know, but, uh, uh, but it takes some courage, you know, when you address a subject that is, that is difficult or touchy in a person's life. And, and then the Holy Spirit says, I want you to talk about it again. Well, that doesn't come within, from within us. You have to have the courage to listen and say yes, but it, you have to have the help of the Lord in that situation. Um, and uh, so let me find my place here. Um, I turned the page already. Okay, here we go. Uh, so it, it's only supernatural courage that could help, uh, can help men boldly face persecution because the, 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 the threat of opposition had not been left behind at Philippi. He said there, he said, we suffered severely in Philippi and he said, we continue to preach it in Thessalonica in the face of stiff opposition. So it wasn't like, well, Philippi is behind us. At least we've got a willing audience here. But in response to that, dealing with that, knowing what had happened there, knowing that the mob had finally risen up, had beaten them, thrown them into prison. Then they start preaching in Thessalonica and the same thing starts to well up again. And they kept preaching. That's a supernatural courage. Uh, they, they, they continued to be surrounded by many who opposed them. 
And then in Thessalonica, their enemies had started a riot against Paul and Silas and against their teachings. And they basically ran Paul and Silas out of town and they sent a delegation to Berea to follow Paul and Silas in order to stir up trouble against them there. But in spite of all this stiff opposition, Paul and Silas continued to preach the good news of Jesus Christ boldly. That's what's, that's the miracle of God part. That's the power of the Holy Spirit part because it does not come naturally in the face of those kind of experiences to continue to be bold. You know, they weren't meek in saying, well, let's preach it over in the corner over somewhere somebody, so that the people don't hear it. But they preached it boldly. Now, I, I want to I talk about boldness a little bit because boldness is something the Holy Spirit can give us. He can work in us. But I want you to understand, boldness is not reckless impulsiveness. You know, I've known people that were just reckless and they were impulsive and they just said, well, I'm just bold. No, no, you're not bold. You're actually sometimes kind of a jerk. You know anybody? You ever know anybody that said that said they were bold, but they were just actually rude? Well, uh, I'm not pointing any fingers or anything, but I've known a few. But but boldness is it requires courage to press through the fears and to do what's right. And, and when you talk about boldness and courage, I mean, they're so closely related. But, you know, courage is never needed until there's something to be afraid of. Courage is meaningless if things are easy, right? I mean, if you're, if you're in the army and uh, you're, uh, I started saying you're in the mess hall, but then I thought, well, that might be someplace where you might be afraid. Um, but uh, say you're, you're sweeping a hallway, you don't have to have courage. This dust is going to rise up against me. No, you don't have to be, have courage there. But if you're on the battlefield and the enemy is trying to kill you, that's when courage means something. And, and so to have boldness in that moment, it's a, it's a step of faith based on that courage. And the word, the word bold, uh, that's translated bold, it actually, it needs more than one English word to, to capture the full meaning of what he's saying there because it describes both a lack of fear. And I, and, and really I'd have to say it's not really so much a lack of fear. But it, uh, but the uh, the ignoring of fear, because courage doesn't mean that fear goes away. It just means you don't pay attention to it, and and it also, but it also includes a sense of a full confidence in the message itself. So it's it's a boldness where you say, yeah, there's something to be afraid of here, but I'm not going to pay attention to that. But it's also a, cur- a boldness that says, this message is so right that I, I can speak it out firmly. I can speak it out with boldness because I'm so convinced of this. And, and, and the good news of Jesus always has to be proclaimed with boldness because we know it is so right. It is so powerful. It is so life-changing that we can speak with confidence. I think boldness uh, it really uh, has a lot to do with confidence. That when I'm confident in the message, then I speak boldly uh, that message. And, and, and it needs to be, the gospel needs to be proclaimed without fear that we ignore whatever we're afraid of. And you know, when you talk about fear and boldness, the greatest fear that most of us face in witnessing in the West here, 
in, in our nation, the greatest fear we have in witnessing is not really persecution. We're not afraid that if we tell somebody about Jesus, we're going to get thrown in jail. At least not yet. But the greatest fear that we deal with, in most cases, is the fear of rejection. Because, usually, who are we talking to? People that are friends, people that are family, and it's people that, you know, listen, if it's some, you know, Joe Blow out there that you don't even know, you don't usually, I mean, you don't care too much anyway if they reject you. But when you're talking with people that you love, that you care for, Sometimes we temper our words or we're afraid to speak because we're afraid of being rejected. And, and there's a sense there where like, well, I don't want to push them away from Jesus, uh, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, the, the fear of being regarded as foolish or stupid can cripple us. Uh, but um, the, the fear of not being accepted too often imprisons us in silence. And, and, and that kind of fear... I want you to think about this. That kind of fear is grounded in a preoccupation with results and a preoccupation with ourselves. You see, if I'm afraid, if I don't speak because I'm afraid you're going to reject me, well, first of all, maybe I'm afraid of failure, that I'm not going to get the results, that I'm not going to be able to lead you to Jesus, so I'm afraid of that. But then also, it's really also a a preoccupation with myself because I don't want you to reject me. But what did Jesus say? He said, the world will reject you. Why? Because it already rejected him. So uh, when, we, when we get our focus in the right place, that's when we get past the fear and we begin to speak in boldness and act in boldness because now... My goal is not the results. My goal is obedience because my focus is on Jesus. See, if we're told to preach the gospel, to make Jesus known all around the world to every man, woman, child, every person, every nation, you know, uh, if we're told to do that, um, then it's about obedience and telling people. But I have to remember, I can't save anybody. So I'm not in charge of the results. I'm just not in charge of the results. And, and so if I keep my eyes on him, then I'm, I'm saying, okay, I want to be obedient to you, Lord. But also what that does is I look at him and I say, Lord, if they reject me, this, this is not about me. They need to hear the message about who you are more than I need this relationship. Now, as again, I'm not saying that you approach it in a way where you push them away and, you know, you're, where you're rude and you're just a, a jerk in the middle of that situation. But, but there are going to be people who, even when you present it in a very, in a very loving way, will reject you. But we have to, when our focus is on him instead of ourselves, it helps us to have boldness to walk through that. And uh, evangelism must be designed to be bold in our God in sharing the story of the gospel as I said, the results are up to God and the results are up to the person who's hearing the message because they have a choice too, whether they will receive or reject it. They're not up to me. And at the same time, we can proclaim the gospel with complete confidence in its power and its validity. It is, as Paul said, the gospel of God. This is not the gospel of Dave. This is not the gospel of Restoration Life Church. 
This is not the gospel of the United States of America. This is not even the gospel of Israel. This is the gospel of God. It is not of human origin. It's God's plan for human salvation. And it's God's way of bringing people into right relationships with himself and with each other. And because it's his, then we can trust this gospel of God to change human lives and relationships. So I think, I think a question we could ask is, how can we be bolder? Well, first of all, the first thing to do is to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to give you courage. Jesus said, and this is not in the, in the notes, so you don't have this back there for the PowerPoint or anything, but Jesus said in Acts 1.8, he said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will, what? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria, to the other part, most parts of the earth. Okay, so the power of the Holy Spirit is given not so that we would take an action of witnessing. It's given so that we, our very lives, would become witnesses. Said you will receive power and you will be witnesses. And so we can pray and we can say, Lord, I want the power of the Holy Spirit because I know that if you come, if you fill me with your spirit, you're going to give me power to be bold and I'm going to be your witness and I'm going to be able to proclaim the, the, the message of Jesus Christ to a world that's all around me, to those that are near and those that are far. So pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. Second thing is <clears throat> we can look for opportunities in our families and neighborhoods to talk about Christ. You know, there's, there's, a, some, there's a bit of an art that can be developed that in conversations you can look because in, in many, many conversations you have, there will be an open door somewhere in there where you can bring Jesus into the conversation. And, you know, maybe they're talking about some sickness they're dealing with. Well, you know what you can say? You, you can bring Jesus in and you say, you know what? Let me tell you about the time I had this sickness and Jesus healed me. Or you can say, if they're, they're, they're walking through a time of heartache, you can say, man, I, you know, I, I really feel your pain. I've walked through some hard stuff, but thank God I didn't walk alone. Jesus was with me. But, but, but what happens is we don't often intentionally look for opportunities, and so we miss it. We don't see it. So the second thing is to, to, to ask God to help you be aware of the, of the divine appointments that He sets up, because I believe He sets them up all the time, and we just don't see it. Um, and... and the, uh, the, the third thing I want to say well, on this is that we can just start where we are by being bolder in small ways. What I'm talking about is growth. See, <clears throat> we, we sometimes want to go from somebody who's, you know, well, I don't really, I'm afraid to talk to anybody. And we think, well, I, I need to be bold. And, and so God may be like Billy Graham where I'll stand up in front of thousands. Well, that, that's a pretty big chasm to leap. You know, and so instead of thinking that way, you just say, okay, Lord, I want to start where I am. I want to be bolder in small ways. Maybe it's when somebody says, man, I'm really hurting that you, you, te you step up in boldness and say, may I pray for you? That's a small step. But for, for some people, that's a big step. And maybe that's the door that God has for you to open up. And, and maybe they say, no, I don't want that. Well, even if they do. You've still, you've still brought this whole concept 
of God and His power and His ability to touch into the conversation. So start where you are and, and ask God to help you be bolder in small ways. Take small steps because over time, as you continue to take small steps, pretty soon you're going to look back and you're going to realize, wow, I've actually taken one big leap forward. But you don't see the growth. You know, how many, you, you know it's like, you ever notice you just don't ever see your own kids grow? You know what I'm talking about? You, you know, they're there and they just seem the same as always. Then you go to visit family and somebody says, man, they've gotten huge. And then you look at them and say, wow, man, yeah, you're right. They have. I didn't notice that because you don't see the growth because it's coming slowly. Uh, but but when you take a moment to step back and see it and look at it, you'll you'll see the growth. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. You may think to yourself, man, I'm just not really getting anywhere. I'm not really growing. You don't see the growth. You don't feel the growth. But then after time, if you keep pressing, keep walking, take, keep taking the small steps, you look back on your life and you realize, oh man, I have grown a lot more than I thought I had. So those are ways to grow in boldness. Let's look at verse three. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. So here again, we see Paul seems to be answering accusations. So this is one of the indicators we have that, that people were attacking Paul and his message, trying to get these people to walk away from, from Christ. Uh, perhaps some of the opponents had, had caused, that had caused the riot in Thessalonica had told the Thessalonian believers that Paul and Silas had been defrauding them and, and, you know, pointed out that, that, he, that they just, just left, you know, severe persecutions. And, uh, uh, well, Paul pointed out that he had just left severe persecution in Philippi. And, and then he had su suffered persecution in Thessalonica, causing him and uh, he and Silas to leave. And, and the question is, and this is one of the things that he, reasons he brings us up is, how could they have been preaching with any other motives than to obey God? Because listen, if they had been preaching to make money and to please the crowds with their preaching, well, they'd obviously gone about that the wrong way. If that was their goal, they were not very good at what they were trying to do. Instead, they fa faced more persecution in Philippi, and then with courage, they preached the gospel and faced more persecution, and then, and then went to Berea and preached the gospel and faced more persecution. And I'm here to tell you, no preacher hoping for an easy buck and popularity is going to take that path. If, if somebody does something and then gets paid handsomely for it, the next time they do it, we can assume that part of the reason is that money, right? So we can understand that. But if they do something and as a result, they find themselves beaten up and thrown into jail, then the next time they do it, we rightly assume that they have some other reason so compelling that it will make them carry on, carry on even though they run the same risk. Paul is making the point. He said, you know, we suffered in Philippi. You know, we faced stiff opposition in Thessalonica. If we were trying to cheat you, if we were trying to defraud you, uh, you, you know, the, you can, you can just look at what we went through to realize that's, that's ludicrous. That is absolutely ludicrous to make that charge because we did not gain from this. And the truth is people will only suffer willingly for something that they believe in totally. It's the same principle, you know, we've illustration. 
with the disciples. People that say Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, the disciples just stole his body or whatever. But the problem with that is, all the disciples except for John, the, John himself suffered uh, uh, martyrdom. Many of them very excruciating, painful deaths. People will die for a falsehood if they believe it's true. We know that's true because of Islam. But there's nobody that I've ever known or ever seen in history that would die for something that they knew absolutely was false. And, you know, uh, when there's no monetary gain attached to it. That's what the disciples did. If they had stolen the body, they would have known Jesus was not alive. <clears throat> and they were not getting wealthy as a result of this. In fact, they were losing. They lost everything in most cases. So they were going the wrong way financially. And if they, if they knew Jesus wasn't alive, when the time came down to it, they're not going to say, oh, you know, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to confess the truth. No, but, but they, they believed it to the core of their being that so, so much that they're willing to forsake everything and they suffer death as a result. People are not willing to suffer severe persecution for something that they, that they know is false, but they will do it for something they believe in wholeheartedly. Such was the case for Paul. And he mentioned three ways in which he and his companions were not preaching. He said they did not preach out of error. Paul had apparently been accused of being completely mistaken in his preaching, probably came from the Jews where they said, no, he's, he's not interpreting those, the Torah correctly, the Old Testament. He's not telling you right. That's wrong. That's all in error. Uh, but, but Paul could point to the difference in the lives of the believers to show the power of the truth that he proclaimed. He could say, yeah, they're saying it's wrong, but look at your life. Look at how you've been changed and you know it's true. He said they did not preach from impure motives. Now that, that word translated impure usually refers to sexual sin or sensuality. And that to us that are with our modern ears sounds a bit startling, but we have to rem remember that that sexual impurity was a regular feature of many of the cults of Paul's day. Uh, ritual prostitution was carried on in connection with many of the different temples. And so the, the, and the Jews actually throughout the first century uh, frequently brought the accusation of immorality against the Christians. And it had apparently been suggested that Paul and his companions had been associated with such practices but the believers in Thessalonica, again, that word, they knew. They knew Paul. They knew that that was not true because they knew him and his companions. And, and they knew how he acted, how he treated. This is the whole premise of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you know us. You saw us. You were there. So you know these things are not true. Third thing is they did not preach using trickery. Now, the Greek word used there for trickery, that's translated trickery in the NIV, it's the word originally referred to, uh, to used to refer to catching a fish with bait. So, and thus, it came to mean any method of deception to trap or to catch one another, or not one another, to catch another person. Um, Paul didn't show up on the doorsteps wheeling and dealing with a wink in his eye and a trick up his sleeve. He was no charlatan, no sweet talker, no half-truth teller. Without any ulterior motives, Paul spoke to the Thessalonians with integrity, 
this is a portrait of somebody who was completely sincere. He had a simple heart and a pure mind. He, Paul was, and, and you, you know, you, you, some of these people might shock you at times, but you learn to appreciate them. But Paul was a what you see is what you get kind of person. You didn't, didn't have to wonder what was going on with Paul. And he had not tricked any of the believers into convert, converting. There was no hidden agenda, no manipulation, no forked tongue. There was, uh, and, and for us, we learned that there's no place for manipulation or trickery in evangelism. You, I've known people that try to teach people to share, share Christ and to try to get them trapped into saying a certain thing and manipulate the conversation. Listen, if you do that, you may get them to pray a prayer there in a moment, but you have not won a heart. You know, so it's just no place for it. Paul was saying in this verse, you can see that we were, that we were preaching a message that is true, that our motives were, that were, were pure and the methods that were completely honest. In fact, we're, we're going to see it in just a moment. Uh, the idea of trickery implies that, uh, you know, he, he puts something out there to trick you. And then, then when you take the bait, he gains he something from it. And Paul's point is we were selfless in this. Let's read verses four through six again. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. There's a cartoon depicting two little sisters rocking on a rocking horse in the family playroom, you know what I'm talking about, you know, those rocking horses. And now they don't do rocking horses, they do spring horses. Uh, but same kind of thing. But uh, these two girls are on there and they're, they're just, they're just rocking away on this rocking horse. And eventually the older girl looks back at the younger one and looks and says to her, if one of us would get off of the rocking horse, there'd be more room for me. <laughs> And I thought to myself, boy, that's a picture of our selfishness. If somebody would do something, then I would be more comfortable, you know. But all of us are guilty of selfishness at some point in our lives. However, a, a relationship with Christ really does, uh, if, if it transform, transforms people, then one of the first things to go will be our selfishness. In fact, I, you know, we talk about becoming more and more Christ-like. I really believe becoming more Christ-like boils down to becoming more selfless. I think all the other things fall into place when we, when we, when we begin to grow in that area. And Paul and his companions lived this out. They lived selflessness before the Thessalonians. Um, they did not seek anything for themselves. He said they spoke only as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. This was their commission. This was why they presented the good news. This is why they they faced persecution and then preached the good news some more after that. Um, and the, the word that's translated approved in that passage means tested. Tested. And, and it was a word that was used of testing a coin to see if it was genuine. So like you remember the days of like gold coins, people would bite the coin because gold is softer and it would leave a tooth mark and then that's how they know. So that's the idea is, is a test to see if this is real or counterfeit. And Paul pictured himself and his companions 
as having been tested by God, not tested by other men, but tested by God. And, and, and they, had, they had been shown to be trustworthy with the mission of telling the good news that Paul, Paul is saying that God had tested them and he had decided they were the real deal. They were not counterfeit. Now, this idea of God testing the heart, if we get this, if we think about this, has the potential to sober you or to, and, and, and to set you free. It, it, it's sobering because we hear God examines the heart. Uh, he knows if you're the real thing or a cheap substitute. He, he knows the, mo- what, the, the motives behind what you do, and he sees through the excesses, uh, or excuse me, the excuses of why you do not do what you ought to do. You know, because uh, we can do the right things for the wrong reason, right? He, uh, simple example. We can go to church just to make other people happy. We can go to church because we want to maintain our reputation and make sure everybody else thinks of us as a good person. Or we can go to church to say, I want to worship God with my, with my family. So the motivation is right, is, is at the core of it. And here's the thing. Other people can't see your motives. But God can. And that's sobering. He knows when I do the right thing, just, you know, when I, when I do for something for somebody who needs something, but I do it just to get him out of my hair instead of doing it because I love it. Anybody been there? Am I the only one? <laughs> so he knows us and he knows if we're the real thing. And these men had been approved by God because he had examined the, the motives of their heart and he had seen what he needed uh, in these willing servants. But, you know, this whole thing, examine our hearts. Nobody can keep a secret from God. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I laugh sometimes when people say, well, you know, I'm angry at God. I know I'm not supposed to say I'm angry at God. Well, it doesn't matter if you say it or not. He knows if you are. It's not like it's news to him. It's like, oh, did you hear him? He's angry at me. I didn't know that. He, he knows it already, you know? And so it's just funny how we, it's like Adam, Adam in the garden. Adam, where are you? Why was he asking Adam? It wasn't because he needed to know. <laughs> he knew where Adam was. He was asking Adam because he wanted Adam to confess where he was. He wanted Adam to face the fact that he was trying to hide from God. He wanted him to, to come face to face with that. So, so uh, you know, God, you can't keep a secret. You can fool people, but you can't fool God. He knows the truth about you. And, and, and what that does, when we begin to really understand that, that causes us to learn how to look at ourselves soberly. The scripture teaches that we should, we should, we should have a, a sober view of ourselves. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that, you know, as opposed to being drunk or high or something. What it means is, uh, a, a realistic view of ourselves, uh, not inflating ourselves with pride and also not debasing ourselves with false humility. Have you ever, ever known people like that, that, that they just want to run themselves down all the time and it's false humility because they know that you're just going to try to, oh, no, you shouldn't say about this. You know, and they'll, they, they know you're going to build them up and it just feeds their ego. So that's why they do it because it's a pride issue. 
but it comes out as false humility. That's a whole different message there. But when God examines the heart, He looks deeper than any human can look, and He understands the person completely. And after looking deeply at Paul and Silas, God knew that these men had no desire to simply please people. But instead, He knew their purpose was to please God. To Paul, the ministry of evangelism had been entrusted to him by God, and it was to God alone that he felt accountable. Now, with that said, does that mean that we shouldn't be accountable to another person? Paul said, I'm, I'm accountable to God. I'm the, he's the one I answer to. Does that mean that we should learn from him and say, well, we're not accountable to anybody else? No, no, it doesn't mean that. Uh, because we need to have relationships that are deep enough where, where we can live in accountability. Uh, but here's the thing. Why do we live in accountability? We live in accountability because we know we're ultimately accountable to God. That's, that's why we make ourselves accountable to each other. It's because I want to make sure I'm making the right decisions. I'm doing the right things because I ultimately want to please God. And I know that ultimately I'm accountable to him. But Paul was, was, was not a people pleaser. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that he went out of his way to offend people whenever he had the chance. Uh, it, it means that he didn't engage in insincere flattery. He didn't, he didn't fudge his principles to land a convert. He didn't soften the message to avoid rejection. But simply put, uh, you know, flattery and, and people-pleasing are signs of insecurity. Because people that, that are involved in those things, they want to sit on the fence. They want to be liked by both sides. And they want to hold off on making decisions to see which way the crowd seems to be leaning. But Paul said he did not come with flattering speech. And, and flattery, by the way, is saying nice things, not to make you feel good, but because I want to butter you up so I can get something from you. That's what flattery is. And Paul determined in, in word and in deed, I'm not here to try to make anybody happy. I'm here to please God. I'm here to please God. In fact, I love the verse in Galatians 1.10 where Paul wrote this. He said, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? Listen to this. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can't serve God and please people. You have to please God if you're a servant of God. And so uh, attempting to gain the approval of others, it will distract us from pleasing God. It will prevent us from pleasing God. And, and as they do God's will, we, we, as we do God's will, we must resist the desire to please people. And, and we all, everybody here, at least to a certain degree, everybody wants to be liked. And so there's the, something in us that wants to wants to kind of, you know, back off a little bit and do whatever we do need to do or say whatever we need to say to sort of make people happy because we want to be liked. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we have to understand when it comes to matters, eternal issues, these things that, that God talks about, I, I have to understand, I have to please God first. So I'm not going to just make up something to, to just to put you off and make you happy so I don't have to deal with you. The clarifying question of the believer should always be this. Who am I serving? 
Listen, speaking as a pastor, I have to ask that question. Because ultimately, I am serving God. Now, how do I do that? I serve God by serving you. But if you're the one that I'm trying to please, then I may, may miss what God wants me to say to you. But if I'm serving God, and if He's the one I'm worried about pleasing, then I'll tell you what, what He lays on my heart. I'll do what He tells me to do. And, and if, you, if you reject that, you know, I, I, can't, I can't let that determine what I do. And Paul's strategy needs to be ours. Do what's right before God. And this is the hard part. And let other people think whatever they want to think. They're going to think it anyway. And you can't control what other people think. You can't manage your image or, or what people think of their perception of you. You can't do that. You can't control what they think. So, so do what pleases God and leave the rest of it alone. And, and even though at times that may be painful. He said that he never put a mask on to cover up greed. And many false teachers, I already mentioned this, I won't spend much time on this, but they would, they would say, uh, they were willing to say whatever an audience would, would, would be willing to pay to hear. And, and, and so there were a lot of them that were charlatans that would come in and Paul and Silas were not out to get money, nor they were greedy for, pay, for, for fame. And we know this because he said, listen, you know, you saw, we worked for a living while we were there. We're actually going to get into that in the next section. So I'll move on from that. Uh, Paul and Silas had spoken only the truth in Thessalonica. No flattery to gain converts. No flattery to build the church, you know. No hidden motives to make something of themselves. No desire for praise from any man. They didn't need anyone to praise them because they sought approval from God alone. Now let's read verses 6 to 12, and I need to hurry through this last part. As apostles of Christ... We could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So Paul is saying, listen, as apostle, as an apostle, um, he could have made certain demands on the believers, such as expecting a certain amount of monetary help. And, and most traveling teachers did depend entirely on donations from the listeners. But Paul practiced the trade of tent making. And, and, as, and so as not to be a burden to his listeners, he did not even want it to appear uh, that, that he was preaching for money. So he says, you saw how hard we worked at our vocation. He said, we labored night and day so that we would not be a burden to you. And so he, may, he reminds them of these things. He's not telling them anything they don't know because this directly uh, uh, refutes these lies that are being told about him saying, oh, he's just in it for the money. 
And he emphasizes the relationship he had with the Thessalonian believers as further evidence of his, of his motives. He said that they were gentle among them, like a mother caring for, his, for her children. I mean, it was, it, um, just picture a mom with an infant child. You know, the, the gentleness that that mother uses. But they, they didn't breeze into town with superior airs and high-minded attitudes. As an apostle who had been handpicked, literally handpicked by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, being used by God to perform astonishing miracles and acknowledged by other churches. Paul had every right to demand first-class treatment. But instead, he served the Thessalonians in humility. Um, and he said that they shared not only the gospel with the Thessalonians. This is such a powerful principle. They shared not only the gospel, but they shared their lives with them. So he said, listen, I didn't just come and preach a message to you. I, I, I poured my life into you. I gave myself to you. This involved sacrifice. It involved looking out for others' interests, not just his own. It involved close personal involvement, not impersonal clinical detachment. He loved them, entering into their lives and, and their joys and their struggles. He walked with them. He did life together with them. And we have to remember to be effective in reaching people. If we're going to be uh, share the gospel of Christ, if we're going to be effective, then we must share not just the message, but we have to share ourselves. When a person feels cared for, he or she will be far more likely to be open to listening to you as you share the good news of Jesus. I don't know who first said it. It's been said so many times by so many different people that I, have, I don't think anybody knows. But somebody once said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When it comes to sharing the gospel, they have to know that you love them. And the old, there are no shortcuts to that. It's not just walking up and saying, hey, I want you to know I love you. And so let me tell you about Jesus. Love is shown by the way you act. It's, it's an investment. And, and relationships are the strongest foundation upon which to build a witness. There are times when you may share a witness with a complete stranger and God will do a miraculous work and they'll come to Christ, but that's usually because somebody else planted a seed that they knew long ago. But, but most, most of your impact is going to come with the relationships, through the relationships that you have, the people that you know, the people that you care for. They're the ones you're going to have the most impact on. And, and the, part of the reason for that is because they will see, when you live this out, they will see that this is not just words for you but it's a way of life and your, your words match what you, how you live. And that gives power and credibility to your words. Uh, and, and really that's, that's really kind of where I was going with this passage uh, is that Paul's experience with the Thessalonian believers points to the overwhelming value of integrity. Paul lived what he preached. You know what integrity means in essence? It's actually an engineering word. Um, if a bridge has integrity, what does that mean? It means all the parts are working together, to, to, that, which gives it strength. 
but all the parts are there and everything is working together properly. Integrity in a life is when the words, the action, the attitudes, all of the things is all working together and all, all congruous with one another and working together and it adds strength to it and it adds strength to your witness. Uh, if Paul and Silas had shared the gospel message but had lived carelessly, had lived without integrity, their message would have had no impact. But he said, you know the impact it had and you know the message is true and you know who we are because you know that we didn't just speak this gospel, we lived it. We lived it among you. We did life with you and you saw how we lived. And he closes this passage by disclosing his desire for the, for the Thessalonians because above all, he wanted them to walk worthy of God. Uh, it, you know, God does not have one standard for, for, for us on earth and another standard for those in heaven. His standard for those who belong to him is that they walk in holiness. Now, does that mean perfection? No. Walking worthy of God does not mean perfection because if you, if you, if you use the word worthy in that sense and say, yes, I am, I am worthy of this God, then you're saying, I'm good enough. I'm, I've reached perfection. No, that's not what it means at all. It means in response to what he has done for us, that we live a life that's worthy of his sacrifice. We live a life of worthy of, of what he has accomplished in us. And that's a life of holiness. It's a life of integrity. And I can tell you this, if you want to make a difference in the world, if you want family members and friends and people around you and coworkers to come to Christ, if you want your, your witness to be effective, that will not happen until you cultivate a life of integrity. You have to make sure that you're living out what you say. Now, does that, as I, again, as I say, does that mean that you're never going to fail and that you're always going to live up to what you say? No, but, but what is the gospel? It's that there's forgiveness. It means you live up to it, that when you fail, you confess it, you repent, you make things right. And that's not normal in this world today. It's not normal. It's what Paul was urging the Thessalonian believers to develop. He's, I'll read it again, verses 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. To live worthy of God means to live consistently with his commands and consistently with his character. It doesn't mean you're going to always be perfect. It doesn't mean you're always going to measure up. But it means that everything in you is, is striving with the help of the Holy Spirit to please Him and nobody else. Our lives must match what we claim to believe and what we proclaim to be true. That's integrity. And that's a life that will make a difference. Bow your head let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, you change us. Because, Lord, we talk about living a life of integrity. And the truth is, we cannot do that without your help. You're the one that has changed us and made us clean. You've made us righteous. You've made us holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we just want to live that out. And we want other people to see how you've changed us. And so, God, even though we're not always perfect, even though our lives fall short from time to time, Lord, help us to make sure that, 
that, that the very center of the motivation of our lives is that we are doing everything we can to please you and not other people and not ourselves, but you alone. Help us to live that way, God. Teach us to live that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.